Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss the perils of programmer design, the purpose of a private beta, the importance of quality chairs for programmers, and the mysterious cone of uncertainty on software projects. From IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. So I think we should start by you apologizing to all our listeners for last week. Um, You've forgotten completely already, haven't you? What did you? I do last week? Well, you opened with like a spoiler. Like you started the show with a spoiler. It wasn't a spoiler. From Wally. It was kind of a spoiler. There were some complaints, and I think they were justified. But, 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 but... But if you knew the thing that I said about the show, that wouldn't really ruin your enjoyment. It wasn't like it was some big twist in the plot or something. Uh, a little. It was a little bit of one. All right. It was, it was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think you should end the show with a spoiler. Not not starting. I think that's really the flaw here is to to open with that. It just gets off on the wrong. I'm just gonna. You know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna spoil the hell out of Dark Dark Knight right now. Cause, oh. Because I'm mad at that movie. <laughs> you didn't like Dark Knight. I did not. Especially considering how really? much I liked Batman Begins. Really, you didn't like? Wow, now we have the opposite. I didn't like Wally. You did. Yeah. I liked Dark Knight. It's not my favorite. It's not the number one movie of all time per IMDb. Right, right. <laughs> but it was, I, I think, very solid. What didn't you like about uh, it? There was just too much stuff going on. There were too many different scenes and too many sets and like a million subplots and plots and sometimes three of them were going on at once and it was just like, it's just, it was just like stuffed. It was overstuffed. It was a very, very long movie. It was almost like two movies in one yeah. because they brought out the other villain. I'm not going to say who it right, is because right. I'm going to get in trouble like you. But I was like, wow, they're going to have another villain all of a sudden. I was like, that's where like it's, it's like two hours in. It's like how many hours of movie are left? It was really uh, – exactly, was, yeah. It was very, very long. Uh, but I thought good, you know. But yeah, definitely too long. I think that's a completely legitimate complaint. A lot of movies that I, that I walk out of with no substantive complaints – the one complaint I can almost always make is they were too long, a little <laughs> bit, either a little bit or a lot, right? Uh, no one's going to – and this is the thing with like blog posts, with emails, anything you do. No one's really ever going to complain that was too short, you know, <laughs> like a, even a presentation. It's like, like, oh, it was too short. You should have been much, much longer. The food. Nobody ever says – There's the old joke, joke, the food was awful. Yeah, and such small portions. That's right. So maybe that's the lesson to take away from this is when in doubt, err on the side of okay. making small Well, I'm really, really know. sorry if I spoiled Wally for y'all. Yeah. There were a few people that were kind of upset about it, so I just wanted to uh, it, know, it, mention it. I don't feel like it's that kind of movie. I really, It's the kind of movie you can go see twice or three times and not lose anything. I don't feel like there was a big twistiness to it. Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. So the big news this week... Excuse me. On Stack Overflow is design. Yeah, we have a home. So I want to. Yeah, we have a design that doesn't actually suck now. It does not like programmer design. It's actually designer design, which is a big difference. Who? Who? Um, who? Who? What? Where's? Where, who's this designer? 
so the the person that I got, his name is Jeremy Kratz, uh-huh. and he had actually emailed me on something unrelated, some something related to coding horror. And uh, I went to his site, and I was actually very impressed. Um, I was like, wow, this actually looks good, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he had done a neat little site. It was a, a system builder recommendation site where uh, if you want to build hardware, it would get the current bestsellers off Newegg. Oh, and sort of synthesize. Yeah, it was a really cool site. I thought he had a good idea, and he implemented it well, and it looked good, and it felt you know kind of cool to use. And I was like, wow, this 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 is the kind of person that I, I might want to help have us help with Stack Overflow. And he did offer to help. I am paying him to be fair, but the usual slave wages that I pay because yeah. everything is sort of self funded at the moment. Uh, and he's also going to get a site credit. He'll be the official designer on the site, um, so he'll be listed next to us with a picture and stuff. So he'll be part of the team at that point. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm very pleased with what we have. Not that he can't be improved, of course. No. And I did. It looks really good. Post it on. Yeah. Yeah, I posted it on on the blog, and got mostly good feedback. And just so you guys know, um, so feedback is a weird thing, particularly feedback on designy issues. You tend to get a lot of noise, more noise than usual, because you know you get into the realm of preference mm-hmm. at some level with design, right? I mean, there's certainly things you can pull out of it, but I did pull some things out of it. <clears throat> From the comments, like, um, I reduced the number of colors on the page. I started to agree with people that there was just too much color on the page. It's a little bit more monochrome. Um, and I agree, too, it's it, it's a little dig-like, which and I don't want to sound like one of those people who's like, I don't even watch television. Uh, but I really don't go to dig, like, very often, like, at all. So I don't have on the tip of my brain what that looks like. Um, so we are aware of that. Um, and the front page is actually going to be recent stuff, not top. Um, so what's on there is is a little bit divergent from what we actually have. It's in the ballpark. Uh, Wait, recent, but I, I just want people to know between recent stuff and top. The, the front page is going to well, be recent stuff. The hot hot stuff, right? It's going to be both recent and highly rated. Uh, well, no, the, we might have a tab that takes you to hot stuff. Mm. <laughs> this is such a weird turn of phrase. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but for now, it's going to be things that happened recently. Um, so if you post a new question or a new answer, uh, it, it'll show up on on the homepage as you know recent activity. Because one of the focuses of the site is answering things. So we want people to see the things that are currently active uh, that that just came out and actually have a way to answer those really quickly. That is one of the focuses of the site. Uh, but we could certainly have a, a tab for hot. Or you know, highly ranked things. You, you can show b- both. Um, you can show like three or four things that need an answer, and a bunch of things that are hot right now. Yeah, sure, sure. Yeah, the homepage is is pretty fluid at the moment. I mean, it's one of the things that's going to change probably the most uh, as we go through the beta. Um, but yeah, I was very pleased to have that. And I want to also mention some other people that helped me with design. Tim Almond was very nice uh, in helping me uh, get through some CSS issues with the old bad layout, and I really appreciated that. He went through. Uh, I think two iterations with me on email, which is very nice. Also, Rob Allen, uh, is, again, try to pitch in with CSS. And I'm also talking with another designer, uh, Nathan Bowers, who I may bring in later on just top navigation issues and some other just get a second opinion on some stuff that I'm that I'm not sure we have right yet. Um, but I want to give a lot of these people uh, beta accounts because it's it's so hard to design without actually experiencing the site. You know, static screenshots. That's the other problem with comments on a static screenshot is people aren't seeing the rest of the site and I'm not explaining it adequately so they're not able to give the right kind of feedback sometimes. Yeah. 
So as we get into the beta, I'm going to start taking that feedback a lot more seriously, obviously, because people will be using the site, and they'll say, based on my usage of the site, you should do X or Y, and those are usually pretty good reasons to do things. Uh, but, it, but it feels really good to have a site that you know, looks kind of nice and modern. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's fully integrated now. I think it took like, I think three or four days to get everything integrated. Cool. It stopped so me when I tried to log on again, but that's okay. Oh, you lost your you lost your cookie. Yeah, something. No, no. I mean, I I when I logged on, I didn't have any questions. Did you reset the database? Oh, right. It's not. It's not syncing to your account. No. Well, we we reset the database all the time. By okay, the way, well, that's why. <laughs> During development, yeah, we reset the database quite a bit. So one thing we can talk about. I got some feedback on the podcast that people want a bit more technical issues to dig into, and one we can definitely dig into that cuts to the heart of how our site works, Mm -hmm. is identity. So one thing that is different for us compared to a lot of other sites is we will never make you log in and create an account to do things. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one of the things we sort of took out of Wikipedia was that we wanted to make it sort of egalitarian. Uh, Another sort of subtle difference is on every page, when you're viewing, say, a question page, there's a box at the bottom inviting you to participate. You don't have to click through to another page or do some other thing. There's just a text input box. Well, actually, it's a markdown uh, input box, a WYSIWYG kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Or WYSIWYM. What you see is what you mark up. (laughs) Um, And it's inviting you to participate. By by answering a question. By answering a question. That's right. That is the unit of work on our site is asking and answering questions. Uh, And to do this, and I think this is one of the things Marco when he, when he criticized the site, didn't get, and it's probably my fault for not explaining it, you can log in one of two ways, either with an open ID, mm. right? So you have an existing set of credentials, an open ID, which protects your password and so forth and your identity. Or there's your traditional, like in traditional blog comments, name, email, homepage, okay? So you can just type in whatever you want there and post an answer, uh, and you haven't created an account. And one thing we do that's kind of cool at that point is even though you haven't created an account, we will have a record in the database for you. Mm-hmm. So we'll track your reputation score. You can earn badges. Um, you can participate pretty fully in the site. I think we might put a cap on reputation as a non, uh, non-authenticated non user. In other words, you have not associated an open ID with your account yet. Are you... Uh, so anyone could really steal your identity at that point. <laughs> even, I mean, um, it's not even protected with a cookie. Well, it is protected with a cookie. What I mean by that is anyone could type in Joel Spolsky, right? That doesn't yeah, mean they're you. Joel Spolsky. Yeah, but but once you once you attach an open ID, there's sort of an additional layer of security around that. And uh, as you pointed out, and this is the technical discussion I wanted to get to, is it's pretty much all centered around cookies at that point. Because what other way do we have? to track what people are doing. Right. It's pretty much all cookies. So if, for, for example, you manage to clear your cookies, um, there's no effective way for me to get your identity back. Say you have reputation and badges. You could probably email me, and I could somehow give you the cookie. Don't even suggest that. Because <laughs> cookies. <laughs> because they will. <laughs> yeah, that's true, I guess. Uh, but the, the site is going to kind of warn you. We have sort of a... Uh, nav bar at the top that'll sort of pop up and say, hey, stuff happened. Um, and one of those things it'll remind you of is if you start to get reputation and badges of a certain amount and you have not associated an open ID with your account, we'll remind you that, hey, look, until you 
associated an open ID, we have no way. <laughs> you could potentially lose all the stuff you've earned on the site uh, if you don't uh, associate an open ID with your account. So that's the only nagginess there will be, and it's only uh, once you get enough reputation. Because um, certainly there's going to be a lot of users that just drive by, maybe give one response ever. Mm-hmm. Um, and eventually those people will be cleaned out of the database. Uh, we do have a way to denormalize um, and attach just name, email, and homepage to the records. Uh, and then, of course, users who never post uh, an answer or a question uh, don't actually, nothing is created in the database for those users. Uh, that's one of the architectural changes we're making. Uh, initially, we were creating a record for every user that came to the site. And then I got really nervous about that because I thought about bots and I thought about <laughs> all the other people that are come to our site uh, anonymously and maybe one time and then never come back. That's also a, a big hit on the uh, on the database. Yeah, huge hit on the database. Yeah. Um, so that's what Jared's working on actually at the moment. And I think that's actually the only blocking element on the beta at the moment is getting that anonymous stuff working. We may you may because we have this. Um, you may want to ultimately set it up so that uh, uh, many of the things on the homepage are cached as static files that the web server can serve quickly without going to the database. Sure. There's a whole other layer of optimization we're going to do. The, the way I look at this is, first, make it fast without caching. In other words, make it as fast as you can mm-hmm. <laughs> without going to the, the traditional methods of caching. And then, if that's not fast enough, or as you want to improve performance, then add the caching. Yeah. So th- that's what we're also going to do uh, during the beta, is figure out where we can cache and how we can cache and excuse me, all those sort of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the place I got this advice on the uh, the smooth ramp to accounts, where there's no like forced login, we we put off forced login as long as humanly possible. Mm-hmm. Um, is uh, Jan Mikovsky? He used to work at Microsoft. He has a blog called Flow State. I'll have to link it. And he had a great post on this that I really believed in. He really convinced me that this was the right thing to do: was to let people do stuff on your site and have this tenuous relationship early on. Where they don't have to like you know log in, they just type in a few tiny little things and remember their preferences and remember who they are as, as long as you can, and then just sort of roll them over, like it's almost like a single or double click affair. For us, it's like oh, open ID, type in your open ID, do the open ID off, and then bam, you're done. Um, and then you can of course fill out your profile if you want to, but a minimum will have your name and email because those fields are required to do anything on our site. Uh, but I, I really enjoyed his perspective on that, and I thought I think a lot of sites get this wrong. They, they have the login wall. You hit the login wall really early. Well, one of the uh, things, much as I love OpenID, um, and the only OpenID provider I've tested is my OpenID, uh, uh, obviously. But uh, much as I love them, there is uh, one problem there, which is that that, that seems to uh, – uh, that, that, that makes the wall higher because actually signing up for an OpenID, it was a little bit complicated, and there were sort of too many steps. Yeah, I, I think that's something that's just going to have to get better over time. Well, I, I think the ecosystem around OpenID is just going to have to improve. It's never going to get as good as if you just if we had our own native accounts and mm-hmm. you gave somebody that had all of this collected. Basically, they have the cookie and they've provided a name and address, an email address, and a website, and they've started to earn right. reputation. And if you you could give them a button that just said, "Want to make an account? Just give me a password," and that's it. Just a or you know, even better, uh, email me a password, a button that you push, and it emails you a password, and uh, you can go in there and you can change it. Or 
Right. And um, but that's that that's that's always going to be less friction than creating an open ID uh, account somewhere. Right. And so we may have a problem yeah, with people that don't want to convert because the of the open ID barrier being higher. They don't want to convert to well, logged in, you know, real members. Right. Well, hopefully that's the kind of stuff we'll get out of the private beta. Is if there's a lot of pain around open ID, like people are getting confused, they can't create accounts, um, a lot of pushback. Then, then yeah. we'll see. I mean, I, I certainly leave that open. Uh, but that is, to me, one of the attractions of open ID is both from the the user's perspective and from the coder's perspective, um, if you can amortize this this cost of the open ID across 10 sites or 20 sites, or how many sites you use it, it's really not that bad. No, but you're right. If, if the only thing you ever do for open ID is uh, Stack Overflow, then sure, it's a bummer right. because it's just another stupid thing you have to do. But it's the amortization of that across 10, 20 sites that makes it worthwhile. And then from a coding perspective, it's great because I, we don't have to store passwords. If you can get out of the business of storing passwords everyone's life is so much better, right? Mm. Uh, and, and you get choice, right? There's a third party there, but part of the complexity is there's a third party, right? right? There, in a traditional site, there's only two parties, you and the site. The site gives you a password and you, you know, but granted, there's a third entity here, so there's going to be a tiny bit more complexity. Um, but it's the kind of thing I want us to grow towards as well. I think it's ultimately a better medium to long-term solution, like for the world. Um, so I want to push it a little, but not to the point that, if there's a lot of complaints and a lot of pushback, then of course uh, I'll consider uh, having the traditional password stored locally as well. Um, so we'll see. I mean, it's not written in stone by any means uh, at this point. But and, and that is one of the things that, that, that Marco did not get, unfortunately, was that there are two ways to log in. So if you decide, hey, you know what? I don't ever want to create an account. You're fine, right? Just don't expect to get a huge reputation number, and you'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. And that's how your old discussion site worked, right? Although you, well, you could create site accounts on your old site, right? Um, for the for the longest time, you couldn't create accounts. You it was just all based on whatever name you typed in. There was no way to own your identity. Uh, right. As soon as Fogbug six, as soon as we switched over to Fogbug six, um, that gave you the ability to make an account and basically claim an identity. And then you got a little orange checky box next to your name that said, "This is a known person," as opposed to an anonymous person. Right. Yeah, I, I have that data. And another thing people were concerned about was that, and I think you were right to, to bring this up earlier, was that if people see our site has tons and tons of .NET content, they're going to assume it's a .NET site. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do think that's a risk, because I got that feedback just off the design that I posted. They already think um, that we're just .NET people. <laughs> but I think there's actually a number of, of programmers that will be drawn in that aren't .NET. I don't think that... Yeah. Yeah, so I don't. In practice, I don't think that's actually true. Even though that may be the perception, I think there's a lot of other programmers with other backgrounds that are going to hopefully participate in Stack Overflow. It's meant to be the non-denominational. So, yeah. I think are we going to start out then with just the content from the beta? Yeah. Is is one of the outcomes of the beta then to generate seed data? Um, makes sense to me. You know what? I was talking to some people about this at lunch today, and I talked about when I opened up that site, the .NET question site, a long time ago. Uh, it was the same day that I opened, I think, four other sites, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, I think there were just a whole bunch of – I had Java – no, Python questions. I had .NET questions and Python questions. No, it wasn't Python. I take it back. What, what's, uh, what's that object Pascal thing that Borland does? Called? Delphi? Delphi, that's right. We had .NET questions and Delphi questions. Nobody came to Delphi questions, but <laughs> .NET questions filled up like right away, and people started asking questions. And I, I don't think it was that many people. I think it was probably on the order of hundreds of people 
that were that were visiting it. But it was enough. It was a critical mass to make it a place where you can ask questions and get get answers. Uh, so I, I'm pretty convinced that if you just open up the beta with, uh, you know, even you know 50 or 100 people initially from that list that you have, and then we let in more people as it proves itself to be more stable. Right. Um, we'll get questions and they'll get answered. It'll be it'll be good. Yeah. No, I'm I'm definitely. I mean, I've been working on this thing, banging on it long enough that I actually want to expose it to the world a little, you know. I mean, the whole the whole point of the exercise of writing software is so that people ultimately use it. And we discussed this, but not on a podcast. One of the saddest things that happens to you as a programmer is when you end up writing code that very, very few people ultimately use. Yes. <laughs> and that, that bothers me. It's like, you know, being uh, an architect, building a house that nobody really ultimately lives in. Is, is, I think, really depressing as a program. I think um, architects probably design about twice as many buildings as actually get built. So, yeah, <laughs> they're, they're, they're real used to that. Right. Right. But it's very rewarding. Like, to me, the whole end state of programming was, was hearing users use your program and actually have some useful outcome from mm-hmm. it. Right? For sure. Like, if you write a program and nobody ultimately uses it, what what did you really accomplish? Like, what 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 changed in the world as a result of, of that action. Um, so that's one reason I kind of like the, the sort of the new web economy where uh, people, software developers, can put code on the web. And even if it gets a small audience, it's guaranteed to be a much larger audience than you would get at, say, some internal IT job somewhere, mm-hmm. right? Because the user base is the world, right? So even if you have this incredibly niche-focused little app, uh, you're going to have so many more users uh use it and be affected by it in some way uh, than you would in sort of the old world ecosystem of, you know, distributing floppy disks like America Online or, you know, however we used to do things before the internet. It's, it's like the Stone Ages at this point. <laughs> it's hard to even imagine how that was. I mean, shipping software to a store, you know, I've, that's very, very old school. You right? know, I, I have this memory that I keep going back to, which is when I was in college, I had to build uh, an application uh, that somebody wanted to sell. Um, and I was going to develop it as a contractor for them when I was in school to pay for my tuition. And uh, it was a DOS application, um, but we wanted to find a sort of a simple character-oriented windowing library that we could use under DOS uh, to create some pull-down menus and pop-up uh, dialog boxes and that kind of stuff, because obviously DOS didn't have all that stuff. It was just character mode. Um, but there were a lot of companies that made these libraries that provided some kind of a windowing system for DOS or some kind of a, you know, basically a sort of like curses uh, for those of you that are familiar with Unix. Um, and uh, anyway, the point of the story is that I, um, I evaluated about 10 of these different libraries. And, um, I, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, for a long time, my memory of how I evaluated these libraries was, you know, I downloaded this sample code off the internet and tried it out and then picked the one that I liked best and then set them my credit card number. But after I had this memory a few times, it occurred to me that the internet... They didn't have the web yet. The World Wide Web did not exist at the time that I wrote this code. <laughs> you actually changed your memory. That's yeah. Great. And and in retrospect, I, I was having a lot of trouble thinking, how the heck did I find these 10 libraries without the internet? How did I even know what the options were to write to these companies, which I must have? And I do now have a vague memory that they sent me floppy disks in the mail when I asked them for a demo disk. They all sent me floppy disks to try it out. Um, and, I, and I tried them all out. And, uh, and I'm pretty sure I just went to the library and looked at uh, like programmer magazines in the back and looked at the ads in the programmer magazines in the back. 
Um, but it's weird that I can't even remember how I you know, I can't even remember what life was like without being able to look up things on the internet or to research things on the internet. So much so that I'm actually having these false memories of having researched things on the internet that I obviously didn't. <laughs> well, that's right, and you know it, it wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, I, I think the first time I had. Can you remember the first time you used Google? Right there's a there's a moment for it. Uh, yes, like the first time you heard of Google. Yeah. When was that? Well, um, Larry Page uh, gave a little talk, a tech talk at Stanford University, uh, and those tech talks were actually broadcast. The video of those tech talks was was broadcast on the internet, which is sort of surprising. Yeah. Um, but that was probably 1999 or something, and oh, wow. the URL was uh, was uh, at Stanford.edu. It was like oh yeah, that was the whole backrub era. Uh, Google. I think it was Google. Stanford. Stanford.edu. I think they called it Google already, and um, and they were actually the the in the little tech talk. Uh, um, they actually had two algorithms that they were talking about. The one was PageRank, and that was obviously what worked. Um, but they had another algorithm that had to do with finding pages that appear to be similar, and assuming that if you know three you know if ten pages are all the same except for these things, that this might be a database, and each of those pages might be generated from a database. And there might be some kind of relationship between those pages that are all the same except for this one thing. Um, so that was a slightly less useful result that they had. And I think um, it wasn't long thereafter that I that I that I linked to it on my blog. So if you can find the earliest mention of Google on Jolan software, that would probably so wow ninety nine. That's that's very early. I think I found it around the year two thousand, and I found it like linked on this this gaming site Shack News, which I've read for a long long time. It's a long time like Quake. Back when Quake was really big and Doom, it was like sort of a news page for that game. Um, but it became very influential in the gamer community. And I remember seeing a link, Google. It's like, what the heck is Google? Because I was using AltaVista at the time, which was, I think, what a lot of people used. Um, but AltaVista started to really decline. Uh, I think there were two things that happened, and people forget this, but AltaVista wasn't really that fast. Mm-hmm. So to me, the first reaction I had from using Google was like, wow, this is incredibly fast, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that, to me, was like enough to get me to switch because I could search just seemingly instantly. Uh, and then, too, just the lack of noise. So in addition to speed, AltaVista had started, you know, it got portalitis, right, where it starts to develop all these cancerous little lumps of, you know, daily weather and <laughs> news. And, like, they want to make it this a destination where you go there just to visit their site uh, when all you really care about is the search results. Um, and Google clearly did not have portalitis, and still, amazingly, I mean, to their credit, you go to the Google homepage, I mean, does it really look that different than it did seven years ago? Nope. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. That had that level of restraint. I mean, I wish more companies had that kind of restraint, <laughs> actually. I was I was sure uh, that Google was going to eventually change their logo, because it's just so ugly. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of an ugly like, logo. They changed their, their, their favorite icon. Uh-huh to that weird little G now, like it's a, like a lowercase stylized G. Yeah. A lot of people were freaking out about this fave icon. Just, just wait till you like, uh, just wait till you start until till Stack Overflow goes public and you change some dark blue <laughs> to light blue somewhere. You can get like three hundred and forty seven negative uh, comments. I notice that every time I change like the, the font on my homepage or something I get huge, huge, huge amounts of angry email because you only hear from the people that, that are upset by the new way of things. You don't hear from the people who are happy about the new way of things. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I expect things. And another reason to have this private beta, we mentioned one of the outcomes is we want to have some seed data to get out of the beta. And the other reason that's a private beta is to remove all the sucking, right? There's probably mistakes we've made that we can't see. Mm-hmm. 
uh, until a certain number of people come in and, and start poking us and saying, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And we'll see that we made mistakes. So hopefully we want to iron those mistakes out before we throw it over the wall. Um, but you're right. Beyond that, I mean, I don't know how fluid the site's going to be over time. I mean, I don't know how are we going to have it push every week, every day. I don't know. Um, but certainly, hopefully we can get a lot of the changes ironed out in the beta so we're not constantly changing the site. No, but that's okay. Um, I mean, a lesson to learn is, is just ignore feedback that you get on graphic design after the first. You know, once people have gotten used to a particular design, you pretty much just have to ignore what they say. And, you know, if they say something useful, if they say, this is not as good because I used to be able to do such and such, and now I can't do such and such, or I used to be able to read this, and now it's too small, or this doesn't work on an Opera or something, uh, the right. Nokia Symbian browser, uh, that's fine, and then you go fix that. But if they're just telling you, like, oh, I, I used to like the old one better, um, that's what people always say, that's what, and that's what they always right. will say. You know what's really impressive is that uh, the iPhone actually runs our site, including the jQuery stuff and the uh, the Markdown editor, which really impressed me. Wait, I'm going to try it right um, now on my new uh, uh, Nokia uh, E71. How do I? <laughs> <laughs> I cannot guarantee in any other browser, but to me, that the iPhone is a browser platform. It's got an awesome browser that's almost like a desktop browser. Yeah, and that's amazing. I mean, I, I can't give Apple enough credit for that. Um, I think that's a huge step forward. And actually, the V2 of the browser that came with the new iPhones, the new firmware and stuff, mm-hmm. is even better and faster. Uh, wait, I'm looking. I'm, I'm loading it up in my uh, in my cell phone. Oh, you know what? It's going to be asking me for some kind of logon, isn't it? Uh, it's pretty decent. Yeah, but wait a minute. It's not. That. You got to know what you know what the login is. Don't say it, Mr. Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> the, the login is Wally. Yes. <laughs> yes. I did something wrong now, and I can't. Get back to where I was. Okay, I obviously can't do two things at once. Trying to type HTTP okay. slash, have to slash on a phone. My word for it, because both members of my team, uh, Jared and Jeff, both have they iPhones. I don't yet. Cool. Uh, I'm encouraging my wife to get an iPhone though, because her phone is really bad. So hopefully she'll get one of the newer iPhones. I gave up, and I should I should not waste this now and, and blog about it. But I just gave up on the iPhone because all the things that I thought um, I was going to use it for turned out to be problematic. So. Um, um, like, for example, I didn't think I would have to wait in line six hours to get one. Uh, <laughs> but, but you already have one. Uh, no, no, I don't have one. Oh, you don't have no. one. So this would be the first iPhone. Yeah, but I'm not getting one. I got a Nokia E71. It's much better than an iPhone in every way. It's got a brilliant keyboard. Well, how can you say that unless you've really used the iPhone? Uh, surely you... Uh, no, I've used your... them. My colleagues here have them. I've played with them. Yeah, your colleagues. Yeah, surely you've experienced the iPhone. Um, yeah. I'm basically really happy with all the fe- with the features and the keyboard. It's the keyboard because for me, it's all about being able to answer email and get it out of my inbox before mm-hmm. I ever and never have to see it again. Right. Um, so the keyboard is is uh, kind of key, and and it is just amazing how much easier it is to type on this Nokia than it is to type on an iPhone screen because the keyboard is beautiful. I have seen feedback like that from a number of people um, that whose opinions I respect. Uh, like Miguel, the mono guy, yeah. said that he eventually had to go back just because he felt like I- efficiency outrules cute and pretty. But, I mean, it, that's the thing. If you're getting an iPhone for some, if you're getting a phone for somebody who's not so technical, or if you're recommending a phone and they're not really going to be like the power users, then an iPhone is definitely very easy to use. Um, but uh, the, the kind of power user I am, I, I've already I've got this Nokia phone for two days, and I've already downloaded two third-party applications to replace the built-in applications 
the first was that the built-in map application that Nokia ships with uh, seems to crash a lot. Um, but there's Google Maps, and it's much better. And it, in fact, can even use gets you know gets uh, uh, GPS uh, data from more sources than just the GPS. So um, so I just downloaded Google Maps, and uh, believe it or not, the Exchange connector that that Nokia ships with for connecting to Exchange server is uh, kind of weak, and it doesn't allow you to move messages into a different folder, uh, which for me is it's like really critical. So I actually there's a company called DataViz, and they make a third-party Exchange synchronizer that connects uh, this phone to the uh, to an Exchange server. And it's thirty bucks, and uh, and it's brilliant, and it does a much better job, and it lets me move things to a folder. So that's like one of these. It seems like a power user feature, but it's really really important to me, and I'm willing to suffer from some lack of coolness in user interface and, and a little bit of setup and configuration pain to get that to work right. Yeah, no, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I, I think people who have used both, uh, their opinions are totally legitimate. Yep. I mean, if if you've had experience with both and prefer. The thing that's on an iPhone. I don't think it's like hype or fanboyism at that point. It's just no. This is just practical. Concern. Yeah, it's just the, the power user phone as opposed to the uh, in the easy to use uh, and elegant and cool phone. But uh, but uh, we got to give Apple credit for going in the right direction with the product, though, because you know Apple can be so resistant about you know we don't think this is the right way to use our product, so you can't use it that way. Uh, they've actually been somewhat open to at least you know having the Exchange connector at all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and moving the device forward for business people, um, and you know, getting the 3G in there because Steve Jobs made this whole to-do about how oh, 3G is you know going to drain the battery too fast. We don't want to include that. It's for your own good that you don't have 3G. Well, I have you know, a whole reality field. I have an interesting question. If any of you are in the Apple Developer Program, maybe you can answer this question for me. But uh, this, the the third-party application that I installed uh, here on this Nokia device is uh, it does synchronization with Exchange, so it synchronizes with the phone contacts. And it synchronizes with the phone email and the phone calendar. And I get the feeling that if you're writing an app for the iPhone, that you are in a sandbox that doesn't have the right to do those things. Now, I may be wrong here, but I would not be surprised if it was simply not possible to you know, read and write and edit contacts uh, as, an app, as an app for, for the user's alleged own protection. Right. You can read. Well, there was that big to-do that you can't be a background app. There's no concept yeah. of background apps. Oh, that's another thing because I, I do that all the time. I mean, I'm literally like waiting for a picture to upload in the background while I'm doing something else in the foreground. Oh, this is a cool thing I got working this weekend with this, this Nokia phone, which I really like. And I'm pretty sure you could find a way to set this up on the iPhone too. Um, so it's got a GPS and it's got a three megapixel camera. And when I take a snapshot of something, uh, it uh, geotags it automatically. And then I push another button and it uploads it to Flickr. And on Flickr, it's all geotagged and stuff. So now I have on Flickr this series of pictures with dates and places automatically. Cool. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, that is very, very cool. Uh, uh, so slightly different topic I do want to mention because I, I, I hadn't ha- haven't had a chance to follow up my blog. So this is as good as place as any. So I went through all that research about chairs, like programming chairs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have an Aeron from 1998. Mm-hmm. So I've had the Aeron for 10 years now. And although I like the Aeron, I had kind of over time grown dissatisfied with sort of the seating experience. I mean, for better or worse, as, as a programmer, you spend a lot of time sitting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, And although you, Jason Kalkanis had a whole set of advice, and I know you disagree vehemently with a lot of this advice, and, but there was one little part of it I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. It was advice for new startups of how to keep your overhead low and how not to spend a lot of money and just buy the things that really matter. 
And I liked that part of the message. But one of his points I really appreciated was that he said, buy folding tables. Don't buy fancy desks. Buy folding tables and the nicest chairs you can afford. Mm-hmm. And I thought, he really gets it. Like, yeah. if... if I, well, I, forgetting all the other advice. I agree with the folding tables. Nobody cares what their desk looks like. It doesn't have to be mahogany. Yeah. But if he gets the fact that the chair is, like, hugely important yeah. as a software developer, then big thumbs up. I mean, I think he does kind of get it. I mean, even love him or hate him, uh, I, I think he's on the ball with a lot of stuff that he says. And this is another example of that. Um, so I, I felt like I could do better than the Aeron, although it's a classic and all that well, stuff. Well, you can get the... So yeah. I sort of went on this rampage of research. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I posted on my blog all the research and all the different chairs I looked at, and I... I Found places locally. Luckily, I live in the Bay Area, so there's a lot of options for me, right, for these high-end chairs. Because not everybody has these high-end chairs. Because you're talking chairs that are $500 plus. So they're not going to be like Home Depot. No. Um, you got to go to like back stores, um, design stores. Like Design Within Reach has a lot of the chairs. Yeah, you can, or, you can uh, order them on the internet. Um, sitforless.com is sort of famous for selling Aeron's. Uh, and I believe that's where I got my original Aeron way back in 98. Yeah. I would swear. I bought it from them. Probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I ultimately decided on the another uh, Herman Miller chair, the Mira. Yeah. And I was initially concerned because I figured, well, how different can it be than the Aeron? But but sitting in them side by side, like literally, like, I went to Design Within Reach. They have both of those chairs. They have the Aeron and the Mira. It was like a totally different seating experience. Um, and when you're spending that much on a chair, certainly you want to try them out, right? Or buy from someplace that has a really good return policy, I guess, if you live say, in Hawaii, like this other guy, Rob, I was talking to, his options are pretty limited. Well, that's, that's interesting, because the, the Mira was originally intended to be sort of a low-cost, entry-level kind of Aeron. That's I think right. the price has crept up to about the same <laughs> zone as the Aeron. Yeah, now. it's not really... They have another chair called the Sela. Uh, Sela? I can't remember the exact name, but it's that's the truly cheaper chair, and that gets really bad reviews. I didn't <laughs> even con- consider that on my list. Uh, but I do like the mesh chairs. Yeah. There were a couple of just preferences that I had. Like one, I just like the mesh because it's more open and it's, you're like floating and it's it's you know if it gets hot, there's less to worry about. Um, so the uh, Mira had that for me. And then just I think design-wise, this is like Aeron V5. I think they've a lot of things I didn't like about the Aeron. Like it's got that hard edge on the front because it's it's like a mesh bottom. Mm-hmm. But if you tend to sit forward mm-hmm. in your seat. Let me let me give you an example. So on, on the mirror, the front is actually adjustable. There's a little thing I can grab right here and pull down the front and actually curve the front of the chair, which is huge. I mean, that's a major design tweak, probably based on all those complaints from the Aeron about the front edge being kind of hard and unforgiving. Um, I find it to be very comfortable. But the, the lesson to take away from this is I think as a programmer – Really invest in your chair. I mean, take Jason's advice, take my advice. I'm sure, Joel, you have – I don't know. What chairs did you guys get for the new office? Do you guys have, have Aeron's? Uh, yeah, we're pretty much uh, Aeron's everywhere. But, um, and we don't even have to get them for the new office because we're just going to bring them with us. Right. So, yeah, it, 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 you guys are living the dream. You guys <laughs> all have Aeron's. And Aeron's a great chair. Don't give me there is, um, um, there's, there's a chair wrong with the There's Aeron. a chair that I've never heard anybody uh, try out, which is the uh, uh, Chadwick chair the, the, by Noel. After Don Chadwick designed the Aeron for Herman Miller, he went over to their competitor, Noel, and designed this chair that they call the Don Chadwick chair. And it's uh, supposed to be sort of, you know, it's what he considers to be his second generation or his next generation chair after the Aeron. You know, they had that at Design Within Reach, mm-hmm. and I hadn't heard of it, so I didn't even try it. I was like, oh, I've never heard of that. I don't, it can't be any good. Oh. <laughs> I really regret that now, because they actually had that at Design Within Reach, and I should have tried it. 
Uh, but it's another mesh chair, which is great. Yeah. So, yeah. And the thing I loved about that, I wrote about this back in 2005, and, and that blog entry kept getting these really good, really knowledgeable con- comments from people that would find it and were doing all this research on chairs. Um, so I wanted to revisit it and sort of fold in all the commentary that I had uh, read and also the links people had found for me on all these really cool chairs. So there's a lot of really good options. It's also really important uh, when you get a chair to get the right size. And, and um, the, the Aeron, for example, comes in three sizes, A, B, and C. And a lot of people that say, oh, I hated my Aeron. It was really uncomfortable. Uh, or just sitting in a wrong size chair. Right. I don't think the mirror. I think the mirror. That's one of the concessions for the mirror. I don't think it comes in different sizes. I think there's pretty much one size fits all. But the Aeron does come in three sizes: A, B, and C. So anyway, something to think about. Yeah. Uh, and I, I mentioned that I pay slave wages, which is kind of depressing. But hey, I do uh, buy uh, my colleagues nice equipment. Both people working on Stack Overflow now have 30-inch monitors, which is nice. Cool. Uh, and I just bought uh, Jared a uh, a mirror chair in terracotta and gray. So he was complaining that his lazy boy was uncomfortable. I was like, why are you programming in a lazy boy? I can't imagine how that's actually ergonomic. Like, in was, he also, was he also using a web TV keyboard and his old 19-inch <laughs> Sony color Trinitron television for a monitor? Exactly. Uh, I mean, I know I've talked about this before, but these things are, environmental things are so easy to fix. I mean, it's not like what Joel talks about where he has to you know, build an entire office. These are just things you can buy. Like, you just go to the store and buy them and bring them back and plug them in or unpack them. Uh, these are so easy to fix that it's just irresponsible. If you know anything about software developers, it's irresponsible not to address these things, like, just immediately mm-hmm. as soon as you hire someone. And that's, like, you talked about, you know, we talked about the Joel list. And, and when I walk into places and I see programmers working, I, I go through a mental Joel list of just equipment. <laughs> <laughs> like, if they don't care enough to get good equipment for these people that they're paying Sixty to hundred thousand dollars a year or more, yeah. then they don't really know what their priorities are. They don't really understand <laughs> what they're doing on some level, you know. So uh, uh, the the new thing so, for our, I don't know if we've already talked about this, but adjustable height adjustable tables, uh, which is one reason I would actually not recommend going with the Staples folding leg tables. Um, those are actually a couple of inches high, and so mm-hmm. your uh, arm is going to be angled at kind of an uncomfortable angle uh, if you're typing on on a keyboard on one of those. Uh, standard like folding leg cheapo tables that you get at stables. Right. Yeah, leg height is supposed to be you're supposed to be like I think a, a, a straight angle. Yeah. Like you're not supposed to have your knees bent too much. Right. So and your that's uh, right. And your forearms should be horizontal to the ground, and uh, your feet should be flat on the ground, not just sort of floating up in the air. And that sort of determines exactly one keyboard height that you can use ergonomically. Uh, it once you do all those right. So anyway, the, another thing that's kind of cool that's it's, this is really kind of optional but really fun is uh, monitor arms. Now I don't know about the thirty inch monitors because those are enormous, but I have these Ergotron mm-hmm. monitor arms, and it's really really fun because I can position the monitors like however I want. Like I can move them up, down, side. You know, mm-hmm. I can even change the rotation. Um, because at my previous job, I would I would flip the monitor around so somebody could see. Because I have three, right? So I would take one of them, this one on the side, and I would just slide it down and say, hey, take a look right here, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it, it really is kind of fun. Um, and th- there's a certain science of where you're, spo- you're supposed to position your monitor. It's supposed to be the top of the monitor. is supposed to be like the top 20%. It's supposed to be level with your eyes. Really? Um, yeah. Huh. The monitor's not supposed to be really high. <laughs> okay. I mean... 
that's just the ergonomic advice. I mean, you don't have to follow. No, that's what I'm doing because that's as high as my monitor goes. But I thought it was too low. <laughs> yeah, that's that's how it's that's how it's supposed to work. Cool. Um, Should we take a question? Yes, let's take a question. We have a really good question that Josh Paris. Uh, oh, that's has. right. It's kind of long. He's actually gone and he's collected uh, snippets of previous calls to, to uh, hold our feet to the fire. So here's Josh. Hey, Josh Paris here. If you've got a, a controversial thing that you think me and Jeff will disagree on, uh, then, uh, then that's what I'm going to play. Remember this from podcast number five? Uh, okay. So that puts it at, let's see, what is it? It's the middle of May now. So end of June, early July. We'll get to so how'd you get this six to eight weeks? What's this based on? What's this? Uh, did you uh, like make a list of tasks that you want to complete? And- uh, no, I, that's just sort of a off the top of my head. <laughs> really, um, it's based on what Jared. Okay, well you're doomed, Jeff. There, there's some controversy. <laughs> you sir are doomed because because you don't know what things you have to do. And this from a fortnight ago. The private beta is still scheduled for this month. It's looking like it's going to be more towards the end of this month. <laughs> and now this, last week. So just so everybody knows where we are, the original plan was to have beta this month. We might be able to do that, maybe at the very, very end of the month. But I think it's looking more realistic that it's going to be slightly into next month, um, maybe two weeks. So that could be construed as quite a blowout, maybe six weeks or double. I want to know why this blowout seems to have surprised Joel. Isn't there some measurement of progress against a task list or at least some ongoing reassurance that the completion date was still looking good? Why has the schedule slipped on a weekly basis? First the end of July, then mid-August. And why didn't Jeff listen to Joel? Why was the blowout so substantial? And could fog bugs have helped? Was it due to okay, poor okay, estimation? Josh, we get the fog idea. bugs does estimation, That was right? Josh Barris. Pa- Josh Barris, not Jeff Barris, actually. And uh, uh, excellent question. And then he goes on for about 45 more seconds of hating. <laughs> so, Jeff, right. <laughs> uh, first of all, I was not surprised personally. I said you were doomed. So I don't know why he was saying that I was surprised. Right. Well, I mean, the level of doom is pretty low on the big <laughs> scheme of things, right? I mean, does it really matter if it's two to three weeks beyond what I said it would be? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I view it as, okay, so first of all, just to come clean. So when we started the project, I, I would say after I, I left my previous job and started working on this, it's not that I wasn't working, but I've spent my entire adult life, I don't think I've ever taken a vacation longer than like maybe two weeks for my, my honeymoon. <laughs> I, I kind of did want like some time where – I don't want to say I wasn't working because obviously I was doing the blog and I was certainly following up to you. We were getting a domain name and all that stuff. But I wanted some low-impact time where I wasn't really pushing it really hard <laughs> and, and kind of relaxing a little bit. So I will say that I could have been more aggressive early on in assembling the team and just getting the infrastructure in place to do everything we needed to do. Uh, so some of that is probably attributable to me, not being as aggressive as I should have been early on. Uh, but once we had the team together, once I brought uh, Jeff on, uh, Jared started with Jared, brought on Jeff, and I brought in designers, um, I think there's a certain amount of variability. And, and McConnell talks about this as the cone of uncertainty. Uh, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but it's like a graph that goes from left to right, and it just it's like a cone. It's like as you get further in, you have a better picture of, of how close you are to the end. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like the reason 
early on, I was giving these, oh, well, you know, six to eight weeks. It was like it was like one of those Polaroid cameras that has the auto developing film. It's like you can't quite see the picture yet. It's developing over time. You know, oh, it might be a, a chair, it might be a dog, <laughs> it might be a ball. <laughs> you know, and then you know, in a couple minutes, you can see very clearly what what it is and, and where you are. And I think that's that's now why we're saying we're actually going to go to beta, essentially this week, uh, by the end of the month. So that's a little bit forward of what we thought. Oh, no, no, wait a minute. Large this is this is podcast number sixteen. And it was podcast number one True. that we said six to eight weeks. So even if you were generous and took eight weeks, that's about double. It's about four week, four months instead of two months. That's okay. I don't. Yeah. That doesn't. It's not killing Possibly. me. But let's just let's just call it what it is. I think that we uh, uh, slipped by about a hundred percent. But I don't even think that we slipped. I, I I feel like what we did what we did wrong, and I don't think it has any consequence. But uh, uh, we you know we never had a. A, a list of features that we that we were going to have, and a list of tasks that we were going. To. Wait, 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 hold on, hold on, because in podcast number five, yeah. I said that the target date was was July, like early July, and it's you know the end of July. It's not that much off. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I take exception to the idea that it's, it's this massive blowout of schedule. A because it doesn't really matter in the big scheme of things, and B because I it, I wasn't that far off. Okay. But I but I, the reason I was saying you were doomed whenever whichever episode it was that I said you're doomed, and uh, I didn't explain it then really was you know given that we did not have a list of what things were going to be done, it was impo- it is impossible to make an estimate. It's just impo- I mean you can't you can't say you don't all, all you can say is uh, you know I've done Stack Overflow before and the last time I did Stack Overflow it took me four months. You, you can't really say that. You can do the only kind of estimate you can do without any kind of information is we have the following constraints. We have to ship something in six months, let's say, and we will cut features until mm-hmm. we're shipping in six months. So therefore, you can say we're going to do it in six months with some reasonableness, although you, what you can't say is what you will do in six months. But I don't even feel like – I feel like there's a mistake, that, and I, and I kind of wanted to leave it standing just because I thought it would be a fun, teachable moment for our audience, and forgive me for being a didactic – prick but um but i i i I, the point i want to make all the time is if you don't know what you're going to do you don't know how long it's going to take even if you know in the vaguest terms what you're going to do uh if you don't have an individual list of the specific things the specific tasks the specific functions you're going to write the screens you're going to design the domain names that you're going to register and all that kind of stuff if you don't have that specific list of tasks it's just impossible to know how long something will take uh in our field because this stuff is just not done that often, every time somebody goes to build a website, they're building something completely new that's never been done before, or goes to build a software program. So, um, right, uh, yeah, without a list of tasks, uh, uh, I, I feel like that's sort of the beginning. And once you have that list of tasks, then you can try to estimate how long each one will take. And even then, they should be really short tasks, like one, two-day tasks. Uh, you know, you have to have that kind of level of granularity to be able to estimate it. Right. I mean, all that is absolutely true. I think the thing that works against me is – let me ask you this. When when you went to college, were, were you a note taker? Um, would you take – Yeah. Yeah. So you would take like volumes and volumes of notes about the courses that you were in and uh, stuff like that? Except for senior year. After three years of taking notes, which I never looked at, <laughs> I realized that was a waste of time. No, actually, you know what? I finally realized that mostly the, t- the taking of notes helped me remember things because it allowed me to organize the mm-hmm. second way. And I never had to look at them again. If right. I didn't take the notes, I wouldn't remember the things. 
Right, right. And what we're talking is a little different than taking notes, but it's I am not a note taker like at all, mm-hmm. almost like pathologically so. Like I really don't like to take notes. Like I, one because I don't really look at them, and second because I just I, I there's something about me where I I can't deal with taking notes. Um, but that said, I mean, creating a to-do list is obviously a great way to organize your life. If you look at, we talked about getting things done, mm-hmm. like last week. Mm-hmm. I mean, how would you even begin to get things done if you have no list of what you're supposed to be doing? So that obviously I do agree with, uh, and I think there's just a pathology in my case where I'm just, Mister, I, I really don't like to write things down. Now I, I should I should say that despite the fact that this is an instructive moment, I, I didn't really uh, make a stink about it at the time because I don't think it matters in our case, and I think that sometimes. Uh, you just don't have dependencies. You don't have people that are depending on you. It's okay to be two months late. Um, right. I mean, we do have a bunch of people that are sitting around waiting for this awesome product that we're going to ship, but you know, none of them is holding their breath. And uh, But also think about visibility. So really the problem with schedule yeah. is when you have no visibility. So you have no idea. I mean, not only from a development level, the people building it have no idea, yeah. but the people on the outside have no visibility. I do not think that's true in our case. Like the whole thing about what we're doing is like it's very public, very visible. I've been posting on the blog. Um, right? You've had access since okay, wait, wait, wait. day one to the site. Well, y- yes, that's true. But but also don't forget, you know, I, I think that there's a common human mistake uh, – uh, there's a common uh, perception. I, I wonder. I wonder if I've talked about this in the podcast. Well, like I said, this podcast is just me repeating myself, so I'll repeat it one more time. Uh, you know, there's a common mistake that people make, which is to think that they know more, that they have a bigger picture than they actually have. And the reason is that all of your senses are uh, fairly limited, like especially your sense of vision. It's limited to a very, very small area where you can actually see, and your eye just dashes around and fills in and answers questions that your brain has. So you're looking at something and you know what that looks like and then you're wondering what's going on over there because something just moved and all you know is that something moved. And so your eyeball turns and you fill that information in. And you've been doing this uh, for uh, however many years you've been alive on this planet. And so your brain's gotten really good at this and the, the brain is filling in this appearance. You get the illusion of having a high resolution picture of everything around, around you even though you only have a very small picture and the other parts can be filled in just by moving your eyeballs. Um, so that's that's just the way the eyeball works, and and uh, there's probably some technical terms that, that that I could be using there, but I don't know what they are. Okay. And so wait, so that's a really good point. So so because you're so used to your eyes working this way, uh, and 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 things in general, you have a real tendency when you think about like I'm going to build a Q and A website for developers. You have a kind of tendency to say I know how it's going to work. I know all these you know I know all these answers. And then when you actually go to build it, all of a sudden you realize, you know, we never thought about how people will log on or we never thought about what will be on the homepage. We went for a long time without thinking about that at all. And yet we sort of felt, we both felt this illusion of having a complete picture of how the site would work. And uh, the reason I told that whole story is because this particular illusion that you know what's going on when you don't is what dooms software Mm -hmm. schedules. Because you think that what you're doing is straightforward, but that's only because you haven't thought about it at any level of detail. And when you think about it at that level of detail, you uncover all sorts of things. And maybe some of the architectural decisions you made early on don't jive with what happens when you think about the detail uh, later on down the line. And maybe you spend a lot of time building something that when you get to the you know, it didn't happen to us, but sometimes you, you could have spent a lot of time building something and then suddenly get to the point where all of your tables depend on a particular uh, other table being available and you suddenly realize you just don't ever want to have that table. Uh, or, you know, some architectural change, um, you, you've never explored the business of the, what's going on the homepage. And when you suddenly do build the homepage, um, you know, some earlier technical decisions that you made turned out to have been wrong. 
That, I don't think that really happened. Well, this is why, but this is why I, we we had timing framework in very early, mm-hmm. so we could tell exactly how long a the page was taking to load and b all the queries that were flowing through the system. But I, I do agree with what you're saying. I think this is a really good point: is that your mind's eye tends to fill. You imagine the app as you want it to be. It's like, oh, how hard hard can it be? We're just gonna plug in a login thing here, and I've done this a hundred times, and it will it will take no time at all. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a, an excellent point, um, but I think it's the job of more than one person on the team to keep you honest, right? Like you're there to keep me honest. Jeff and uh, Jared, my teammates, are there to keep me honest. Our designer Jeremy is there to keep me honest. You have you have a consensus opinion based on a real world artifact, right? We're not imagining it. We actually have a dev site that you can go to right now and see exactly where we are and exactly what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So there, there is an objective reality there and there's more than one person involved. So I think that's the important thing to take out of that. And then also that don't procrastinate. And I think you, again, excellent point that you always imagine it's going to be easier than it is. And you can't think through all the details that are going to go wrong and all the weird things you're going to have to think about until you actually start to do it. So the worst thing you can do on a project is procrastinate. I know this is very painful to hear because I'm also like a world-class procrastinator. (laughs) And like I said with the schedule, I probably should have started a month earlier than I did, honestly. And I attribute that entirely to my own procrastination. But the sooner you start, the sooner you'll know all the things you need to know about what you're doing. I feel like um, that's where the imagining hurts when you. I, when I get into so the, just start immediately. When I get into this debate with people, I always say you should start by designing something, writing specs, creating drawings and stuff. And, uh, and they usually say something along the lines of what you just said a minute ago, which is there's a million details that you can't possibly foresee. You have to just start and see what they are. And I would actually say, yes, there's a million details. You can't foresee some of them, but you can foresee a lot of them. And if you do try to foresee those in advance, you'll save yourself some line, some time down the line because you may notice that you're designing something in a direction that you're not really going to use uh, or, 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 uh, or that that's not going to make sense later on in the line. Now, this matters a lot less for like a small-scale startup like what we're, what we're doing here, you know, building a simple little site using state-of-the-art tools. Um, but I can imagine uh, – but there are an awful lot of business situations you get in where you're building software, and shipping on time is a really, really business-critical thing to do. So, for example, think about the uh, – um, think about just how bad the iPod uh, 3G – sorry, the iPhone 3G software was uh, on the day that they launched. And that's probably because they had these huge commitments to get this thing out at a certain amount, on a certain date, and they pretty much just had to ship when it was unready. They had to rush something out. And uh, now they're suffering from, they, you know, they suffered from a meltdown uh, as a result, and the software is buggy as heck. And, you know, they'll get that patched up, but, um, you know, they had a real, think about if you were working at Apple on that development team shipping some piece of software, you don't have the option of being eight weeks late. You just don't. You're going to get fired, and then you're going to get cut into little pieces, and then the pieces are going to be thrown on fires, separate fires, so that there's no hope. <laughs> And uh, that's that's what's going to happen if you're late. Or or think of you know another example might be a game studio that's developing a game that has to tie in with a big movie, and the movie has a release date. And if your game is not ready on that release date, you lose ninety percent of your potential customers for your for your game. Yeah, no, I wasn't really advocating that there be no upfront design. I, I really advocating that there should be just enough, and where enough is debatable, obviously, yeah. enough design so that you're not just randomly doing things. Yes. Have a plan. <laughs> But then start on the plan like as soon as possible, and then just the whole iterative nature of you know keep building, then plan some more, then build, then plan, then build, then plan. 
uh, I think is is the way to go. I think but actually for a lot of, there's a lot to be said for a lot of new applications that people are developing. The first spec uh, you may want to write and the first schedule you may want to make is for version 2.0 or the first big upgrade. You know, it, it, really? well, uh, yeah, I can imagine a lot of things. I think of like Twitter, for example, where just getting the first version out there, you have no idea how people are going to use it. You just have no idea what it's going to evolve That's into. True. Just do a 1.0. It's small. You build it in eight weeks. Nobody's about to starve because they're going to run out of money. Uh, although, you know, you right. may be in that situation, but, but we're not. And, they're, they're, <laughs> and uh, uh you know, and if it takes a little bit longer, it takes a little bit longer, and and you know you're going to have some major change in direction. But then 2.0 is where you say, ah, yes, we need you know SMS or we need you know whatever it is that they want to add for 2.0, and it's very clear what thing you're going to do, and it's just that one thing, so you can sit and you can stop and you can design it and you can schedule it. The other um, the other business reason why it's often important to schedule things is that uh, when you sit down and you design things and then you estimate how long they're going to take, you get some surprises. Like this is really going to take a lot longer than we thought or this is going to take a lot less time than we thought. And it's pretty important, I think. I think everybody agrees that at any given time you want to be working on the feature that's going to get you the most bang for the buck, that's going to get you the most whatever it may be, increased sales or increased customers or increased eyeballs or increased whatever it is you're trying to get for the least amount of development work. And those are the features you want to do first. But if you don't have schedules and estimates, you don't really know which features get you the most bang for the buck. You don't have any information to feed into that equation. So you do some random thing that sounds fun, you know, and maybe it takes two years instead of four days. And, uh, and you suddenly realize that thing would have been worth four days, but it wasn't worth, sure as heck wasn't worth two years. Right. But I think continually revisiting those decisions is the important thing. And on the previous podcast, I talked about the desire to create public artifacts is one thing. I don't really have a getting things done, but I do like to produce public artifacts. I believe that's really important. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Josh was able to call me on this is because I've been out here in public talking about this stuff. And so this is the flip side of of doing stuff in public is people will – hold you to your claims and they will also look critically at what you're doing and i think this is hugely important whereas if i was just in isolation like i went totally dark Uh you wouldn't know where i was i wouldn't be making these proclamations i I don't know when it'll be done i'm not going to tell you anything (laughs) (laughs) so just the fact that it's being done in public and and being shared i think helps you i think get things done on some level even if you're totally an amateur like i essentially am uh the 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 value of the other people looking at it will will help you finish, I think, uh, as long as you're you know somewhat rational about the way you approach feedback. So I, I mean that's a great question, and thank you, Josh, for for putting that together. And I think it's a totally legitimate claim to make. Cool. All right, that was a that was kind of an interesting conversation. Uh, thanks, uh, Josh, for the question. Jo- Josh, also while we have you on the line, thanks for all the transcripts uh, that you've done uh, and all the editing of uh, uh, transcripts on the wiki. Um, uh, but by the way, if this is your first time listening, we do have uh, a large team of volunteers around the world who all contribute uh, to the transcripts on the website, which you can get to from uh, blog.stackoverflow.com. And uh, there's a little tra- transcripts of, of all these, uh, which are provided for the benefit of search engines like Google and also for the benefit of uh, the hearing impaired who can't listen to our podcast. So to all those uh, volunteers who contribute those, thank you very much. Um, if you have a question or something you want to debate or uh, some kind of interesting uh, – something that will cause uh, an argument between me and Jeff here because we don't argue <laughs> enough, um, please record it in the form of an MP3 or an Vorbis file and email it to uh, podcast at stackoverflow.com. You can also use 
but it cannot be about learning C. That's my wrong. It can't be about yeah, learning that's, C. That's, that's done. That's just done. <laughs> Wait, are you the one that just wrote some kind of blog post on some kind of website about how you need to build your own computer so you know how computers work? Yeah, I did write that. Yeah. But you don't need to learn C because that has nothing to do with how computers work. <laughs> Anyhow. Uh, oh, next show. Next show. Okay, we'll talk about C some more in the next show. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Bye. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.